0: you would please take out your Bibles and turn with me to Mark's Gospel. We're in chapter 15, getting very close to the end of our series. And in many ways, we are at the climax today. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer. Please join me. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we are in great need this morning. We are hungry and thirsty, Father, for your word. So would you be pleased to feed your people that we would be able to grow up into maturity, putting sin to death and putting on righteousness. Father, would you open our eyes to see Jesus, open our hearts to, open our minds to know and our hearts to receive Jesus today as he is presented in your word. Indeed, Father, may Your Word before us be our rule, Your Holy Spirit, our teacher, and Your greater glory, would it be our supreme concern now and always, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. In the first century and in the 21st century, there is widespread ignorance and confusion regarding the identity of Jesus Christ. The first few weeks of our series, I mentioned an article I read, Ten Counterfeit Christ Figures We Should Stop Worshiping, which was an excerpt from a book entitled The Original Jesus, Trading the Myths We Create for the Jesus Who Is. And in this article on Ten Counterfeit Christ Figures We Should Stop Worshiping, the author speaks of the guru Jesus Red Letter Jesus, Braveheart Jesus, American Jesus, Left Wing Jesus, Dr. Phil Jesus, Prosperity Jesus, Post Church Jesus, Best Friend Forever Jesus, Legalist Jesus, or, of course, the Jesus I imagine, the Jesus I make in my image, the Jesus I wish he would be. Well, in an attempt to know and follow the biblical Jesus. In other words, the authoritative account of Jesus Christ. We've been doing this series now for well over a year. Jesus according to the Bible. An exposition of the Gospel of Mark. Because there were questions then and questions now like this. Who do people think Jesus is? Who do you think he is? And these two questions are at the very center of Mark's Gospel. Indeed, it's the two questions that Jesus asked Peter in chapter 8 when the the Gospel of Mark swung like a hinge from a confession of faith to a call for discipleship. We mentioned in our youth and adult class this morning, Luke chapter 24, verses 25-27, where Jesus, after His resurrection, told some of His disciples that all of the Scriptures are about Him. Because we see in the Scriptures in the Old Testament promises made and in the New Testament promises kept. And those promises are all about Jesus. They find their center in Him because the Bible indeed is all about Jesus. In the Old Testament, He's predicted. In the Gospels, He's revealed. In Acts Jesus is preached in the epistles or the letters, he is explained. And in Revelation, the last book of our scriptures, he is expected. And we've seen thus far in Mark's Gospel that Mark is a shortest catechism. We've got the Westminster larger catechism, the Westminster shorter catechism, but I like to see Mark as the shortest catechism with three question and, and questions. Who is Jesus? What did he come to do, and how should someone respond to the person and work of Jesus? And as we've been traveling through Mark's gospel, if we ever find ourselves lost, we can always come back to those questions. Who is Jesus? What did he come to do, and how should someone respond to the person and work of Jesus? Well, as I mentioned, we're getting very close to the end and i believe today we will see that we will reach the climax of mark and soon the conclusion as mark begins brings his gospel to a climax and a conclusion he's been painting two pictures for us from beginning to now the sovereignty of god that god is in control and directing everything that is happening but also the weakness of the human heart god's sovereignty and human sinfulness, frailty, and weakness. And these two pictures overlap at the cross. And the cross is not only the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures as we heard Psalm 22 read. But the cross is also the fulfillment of Jesus' own prophecies. We saw in chapters 8, 9, and 10, where three times He told His disciples that He was going to suffer. He was going to die, but then be raised from the dead. The cross, the Christian logo. Whenever you see an apple with a, with a, a stem and a leaf and a little bit bit out of it, what do you think? Yeah, you think of the company Apple... Whenever you see um, these this round circle with these letters, it's in a beautiful cursive GE. What do you think? General Electric. When you see the the globe um, with some blue and white, you may think AT and T. When you see a red check mark, you may think Verizon. Indeed, Grace and Peace has a logo, and you can see it, I believe, on the back of our bulletin, maybe. Is it there? Yes, it's there. Well, what is Christianity's logo? It's not the fish. The authentic Christian logo is the cross. And yet, it's an incredible symbol. It's too extraordinary and too improbable to be believed. It's hard to believe. Why? Because it's absolutely amazing because there was nothing, absolutely nothing, originally attractive, or beautiful about a cross because it was an instrument of torture and execution. Whenever somebody sees a swastika, what do they think? Nazi Germany. Whenever someone sees or used to see a hammer and a sickle, what would they think? The Soviet Union and the increasing Oppression that communism brought. A swastika, a hammer and sickle, a cross. Crucifixion on a cross was nothing less than supreme humiliation. Now, in the political military machine known as the Roman Empire, that had a vast array of ways to kill people, it remained the most extreme form of the death penalty in fact in first century proper roman society did not talk about the cross it was an instrument of the roman empire but if you were having a dinner party if you were at work in the market you didn't talk about the cross a roman philosopher and orator named cicero said this quote even the mere word cross Must remain far not only from the lips of the citizens of Rome, but also from their thoughts, their eyes, and their ears. Yet, at the center of the Christian gospel is the cross Christ crucified. As Paul writes, it's a stumbling block to Jews and it's folly or foolishness to Gentiles. And yet, the cross is at the center of gravity of Mark's narrative. At at the center of his narrative is a cross, and at the heart of the cross is a mysterious and unfathomable question. Look with me ahead to verse 34 in Mark chapter 15. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Me. In the 1500s, Martin Luther is said to have given himself to meditation on that text for hours only to finally be able to rise and say, God forsaken of God, who can understand it? Two centuries later in the 1700s, Charles Wesley picked up the theme when he wrote, And Can It Be? which we sang last week, and verse 2 says this, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies." Who can explore this strange design? Well, nonetheless, we're going to explore this strange design as we consider Mark's narrative of the crucifixion of Jesus. We're going to look at 24 verses. As I mentioned, there's probably a dozen sermons out of this, but today it's all one. And as we unpack the text, we will observe three things, I believe, about Jesus. He is rejected by men. He's abandoned by his Father. And he is recognized by his death. First, we're going to look at Jesus is rejected by men. And please join me as I read verses 16 through 32. and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called the king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Did you notice the mocking of the Gentiles? The mocking of those who were not Jews. And this emphasis here in Verses 16 through 20 is on a humiliating mockery that's even portrayed as greater than human suffering. Here is a parody, a sarcastic parody to paying homage to a king with purple clothing, a crown of thorns, kneeling down in a, in, a, uh, in absolutely false intent, and purpose before him. Here is Jesus being mocked by the irreligious, mainly for his claim to be a king, or at least the claim that others are making that he is king. In verses 21 through 27, you see an economy of language. Mark writes almost without comment or interpretation. He just presents the facts. And there in verse 24 is probably the greatest understatement in the Bible. And they crucified him. Around him was a Roman execution squad, probably force and Four men with a uh, squad leader, a centurion over them. And what they were doing was nothing less than the routine execution of a criminal. They'd done it before. They would do it again. Nothing special. Did you notice that Mark includes small details in this description? Well, why? Well, because, first of all, it happened historically. But also to teach us something about Jesus. Look at that detail of Simon of Cyrene, who's forced, forced, literally to take up his cross and to follow Jesus. Because the most indispensable and distinguishing mark mark of discipleship in Mark is taking up the cross and following Jesus. Indeed, it's the first mention of the cross since chapter eight, verse 34. Another detail is this, there's an inscription, it's the king of the Jews, and it's for that Jesus is condemned, mocked, and crucified. He's crucified between two robbers, thieves, rebels, insurrectionists, and indeed if you haven't been thinking about Isaiah 53 that we read often, this is an echo and a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Mark here is objectively admitting this terrible reality of a crucifixion, but he's not doing it with sensational language or sentimental language. Did you notice that the mocking is not just done by Gentiles? The mocking is done also by Israel, God's people, the Jews. We see that in verses 29 through 32. Look what the people do. They command Jesus, save yourself. And the religious authorities make a statement. He cannot save himself. And in verse 32, we read this. Come down from the cross that we may see and believe. They will believe if he comes down from the cross. And yet, for those of you whose eyes and hearts and minds have been open to the reality of Jesus will know that it's actually by Jesus staying on the cross for us in our place and on our behalf that we believe. The very demand for a sign is evidence of unbelief, just like we saw earlier in chapter 8. One commentator writes this, The taunt assumes that salvation of self is the greatest good. The surest vindication of a would-be Messiah is therefore the ability to save himself. Jesus, however, has not taken upon himself the mission of self-help and self-fulfillment. Did you hear it again? The command, save yourself. The statement, he cannot save himself. The focus Is on Jesus saving himself. But what Mark has been doing is showing us that only if Jesus refused to save himself could he save others. Jesus is mocked by both the religious and the irreligious. He's mocked by the irreligious for this claim put upon him to be king. And he's mocked by the religious now for his claim mainly to be a savior. And there's great irony. The soldiers around Jesus are unwittingly acknowledging Jesus' true identity. King of the Jews. King of Israel. King of God's people. Even in rebellion against God, humanity still cannot but bear witness to God. We see that in Romans 1. The truth can be suppressed and the truth can be exchanged, but the truth cannot be destroyed. And here it is, unbelieving pagan soldiers are bearing witness to the identity of Jesus. Now, although surrounded by two criminals and his executioners, Jesus is utterly alone on the cross, just as he was alone in the Garden of Gethsemane. Both opposition and desertion have reached their peak. While on the cross, Jesus is universally rejected. And that rejection is now going to be seen to extend to an unimaginable degree as Jesus is abandoned by his Father. Join with me as I read verses 33 through 36. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. What we see now is a sign, a massive sign of darkness in the daytime. A few weeks ago at about 8.30 in the morning, a storm came over the Cincinnati area. And to me, it looked pitch black, dark outside. Here is the description of a period of time of darkness in the daytime. If you're in Amos chapter 8, it's a sign of lament. And if you're in Exodus chapter 10, with God's people about ready to be delivered out of slavery in Egypt, that darkness was The darkness of judgment and wrath. As Jesus is being abandoned by his father. There is darkness in the daytime. And in verse 34 we see a cry. Remember Gethsemane. God, father if this cup can be taken away from me please take it away but not my will but your will be done god's will is being done and at that moment jesus cries out but what does jesus do he says my god jesus is still recognizing that he's connected with his father it's an affectionate covenantal address Jesus, the Son, is obedient to the Father even in the face of total rejection. He's not just a dying Savior, savior, he's a doing Savior to the very end of his earthly life. And what was God the Father doing as Jesus in saying, my God, my God? Jesus is being obedient and what is God doing? He's turning his back turning his face on Jesus. Jesus is experiencing the infinite agony of hell. This cry of dereliction. Notice, these are the only words uh, in Mark's gospel that Jesus speaks from the cross. John has a few. Luke has a bunch. Mark only has this. Why? Why? Because Mark wants to underline the enormous cost to Jesus of obedience to the Father's will. Jesus is bearing both the burden of the world's sin, His complete self-identification with sinners. And at the same time, it's not merely that, but it's a, a, a real abandonment by His Father. Another theologian writes this He, that is Jesus, was bearing on himself all the awful consequences of human sinfulness before God, so that any who come by faith in him might be set free from those consequences and follow his way of obedience to the Heavenly Father. From the deepest point of darkness emerged the cry of desolation. How else could it be expressed? Well, there were folks around Jesus, as we read, who heard this cry, and Jesus's cry is met with complete misunderstanding. There is confusion not only in the language, but as well as with man-centered preconceptions. Despite the darkness at the time, it did not occur to them that Jesus had been forsaken by anyone greater than a man, whether they the, the chief priest. Or the Roman authorities. Or that Jesus could be vindicated by a greater miracle than rescue from the revered prophet Elijah. Who many thought would come back. Not despite, but rather because Jesus was rejected by men and abandoned by his father. He opens the way For his people to come to God. Since the fall of man in the garden of Eden. The way back to the immediate intimate presence of God was blocked by what? A flaming sword. And in the crucifixion the flaming sword of God's wrath against sin. Drops on Jesus. And it's extinguished. Because God's people are begin to, begin to recognize that Jesus opens the way back to God. Because thirdly, Jesus is recognized by His death. Beginning in verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed His last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. The cry. It's loud. We don't know what he said. He probably didn't say anything, but rather that's his last breath. It's his death. He breathed his last In other words, there's a deliberateness of it. Because when Jesus had completed His work, He died. And even in His death, He was in control. There's a loud cry. But there's also a sign. Between the descriptions of Jesus' death and in a moment the centurion's response is a sign that explains what the death of Jesus achieved. Now in the, cur- in the temple in Jerusalem, there are two curtains. There's one from the holy place to the um, most holy place, but there's also a curtain from the court of Gentiles into the temple itself. And it was torn from top to bottom one they're probably talking about is the curtain that the high priest had to go behind to enter the most holy place. The curtain kept sinners out of the temple and then also out of the holy of holies. And so what is being symbolized here is the way to God is opened. The, court, the, the, the curtain standing between God and man is torn and removed through the death of Jesus. We will see both salvation, man comes into God's presence, and judgment with the later destruction of the temple. In either case, whether it's the, the, temp, the, the curtain from the outer to the holy place or from the holy place to the most holy place, either way, the significance of the tear is the same. Jesus' death has created the way into God's presence. And how does the centurion respond to the death of jesus this in many ways is the climax of mark's gospel the centurion the the roman soldier in in charge of the execution squad stood facing jesus well what was it about the way jesus breathed his last what was it about the way that he died well the centurion sees jesus not as a victim But he sees Jesus in charge until his very last breath. The cross where the centurion sees is the place where the the Messiah most clearly appears. This Roman centurion is given insight by divine revelation. It was given to him and he makes a statement of faith. Here it is, a hated Gentile soldier makes the greatest human confession in the entire gospel. Well, wait, you might say, Peter's confession, you are the Christ. Well, what happened when Jesus told Peter he had to die? Uh-uh. No way. Here is the greatest confession in Mark's gospel. The first verse of Mark's Gospel, Jesus, the Son of God. Earlier in the battle with unclean spirits, they recognized Jesus as the Son of God. We see that in chapter 3 and chapter 5. And you know what Jesus says? Shut up. Not now. It's not the time to reveal that. But now it is. And his confession, to be sure, was true in a higher sense than he understood. So on the cross, Jesus is rejected by men, abandoned by His Father, and yet recognized by His death. Okay, so what? What does this have to do with me now, 2,000 years later? Well, absolutely everything. For at the cross, we hear both a question and a statement. The question from the cross a mysterious and unfathomable question. Although it's mysterious and seemingly unfathomable, this question is nonetheless answerable. Why did God the Father forsake God the Son? Why did He do it? For us. For those who would come to trust in Christ alone and not in anything else, as the means to a right relationship with God. Jesus was humiliated, rejected, abandoned so that you and I and others who trust Jesus would not be. God was forsaken by God in order that we would not be forsaken by God. Do you ever feel that friends closest to you may leave you? Do you ever feel that the dream job that you've had may not last forever? Do you ever feel like the the classmate that you've been with for for four years in a row is is no longer going to be in your class with you? Do you feel abandoned? Do you feel let down? My friends, when it comes to our relationship with God, Jesus was abandoned for a time so that you and I would never be abandoned for any time. When my sister's husband of 28 years left her, oh, did she feel abandoned. But she turned to the Lord. And has a growing, close, intimate relationship with him. The one who will not abandon her. Ever. So there's not only the question from the cross, but there's also the statement toward the cross. A confession of faith. It's amazing, isn't it? The disciples completely confused. The religious leaders completely reject. Onlookers, bystanders, they completely misunderstand. The centurion is a Roman Soldier, He's a Gentile. He's an outsider. He's not an insider. And he gets it. He gets it because he was given it. He's the only human being in the gospel who actually uses the title Son of God. The one most directly responsible for killing Jesus, get this, is the one who recognizes Jesus. <laughs> You know what? Mark is making this point. The way to God is open to anyone. Great comfort. There is hope for anyone. Do you think, do you have relatives and friends who you say are lost and there's no way they can be found? Are you kidding? Take a look at your own life. God has found you. He's rescued you. There's great comfort But there's also a challenge. Don't put your hopes in religious instruction or moral attainment. Put your hope and trust in the crucified Savior. So finally, this question from the cross and the statement toward the cross form the message of the cross. There's only two responses to the message of the cross. You either reject it or you receive it. Because at the cross, two fundamentally opposite things collide. The offense of the cross and the Christian proclamation of the cross. But this collision is always reconciled and resolved. When a person, when you and I, when we realize that, you, that we deserve the death that Jesus died on the cross... Only then does the cross make sense. And for many folks, it suddenly makes sense. The cross is no longer an obstacle to faith, but rather it is faith's most powerful attraction. The cross is where peace with God is found. And of course, it's from that peace, that peace with others can be sought and found as well. Well, in making this the climax of his gospel, Mark is inviting his readers to make the words of the centurion their own. Who is Jesus? Here in his weakness and his rejection, Jesus is seen to be none other than the Son of God. My friends, this is a call for all of us to assume the position of the Roman centurion and look toward the cross. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, We acknowledge that we were so wicked and sinful that Jesus had to die for us. Yet we also acknowledge that we are so loved and treasured that Jesus was glad to die for us. Indeed, those people who believe and trust in Jesus are the joy set before Him as He headed to the cross. Jesus took your curse so that we could receive your blessing. Father, may your word that we have just heard, would it take up residence in our life and change us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, and our substitute for your glory and for the good of your people now and forever. Amen.